Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. And the discipline, I think, of some of the yes leaders in the face of the barrage that they've been receiving, sometimes under the guise of sensible debate, but often not, has almost been heroic, the discipline of not taking that bait. Hello, lovely potters. Uh, Welcome to the show. I'm Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me in the Sydney studio is Peter Lewis, who is the executive director of Essential Media. Hi, Catherine. And uh, that will give you a clue. We are going to talk about the latest Guardian Essential poll, as we do in these special additional episodes of Australian politics. Now, in setting up uh, for this conversation, obviously numbers always have a context. So we've just finished two pulverising weeks in the federal parliament where uh, shouting seemingly surround sound shouting about the voice to parliament proposal and the referendum featured very heavily. So, you know, that's the context. What do the numbers say? So in terms of yes, no, don't know, the no's have risen three points from 48 to 51 the yes has dropped one from 42 to 41, and the not sure's are down from 10 to 9. We can sort of go deeper into that in a sec. And of course, I should also disclose that Essential are proud, yes, 23 campaign partners, and also <laughs> we're talking about IR later, we work for a bunch of unions as well. Um, as we always say, polls aren't a scoreboard and they're not predictive, they're descriptive of where we are. This poll was taken last week, which was, as you say, during peak shoutiness in Parliament and in media and before both the weekend marches put forward some alternate images of how this national journey could be portrayed, but also before the um, Yes campaign's four-week advertising really began. Um, the Farnsey ad was a bit of a um, a teaser and a warming up, but the, the the ads that have begun running this week, which are talking about the possibility of change from a young Indigenous child, have only got going. So they weren't covered in this period. Yep. None of that is to gloss over the fact that if you are someone like me who wants to see progress around the response to the Uluru Statement, these are not great numbers. Um, we are at a point where 
it was a shift within the margin, but at the outer extremes of the margin, a margin of error of a poll of about 1,000 is plus or minus 3%. So you could say it's just the same. But we did see a hardening of the no vote and it's been hardening. And the trend, I think, Catherine, over the last, since mid-June has been one of a hardening and growing no vote and a whittling away of both the hard yeses and to be honest, the the soft yes not really improving markedly either. So, you know, four weeks to go, um, we are at a position where the numbers, if the polls are in any way indicative of what's going to happen, um, need to get moving for yes. Yeah, and there were some interesting questions that we threw in this week. It's important, obviously, in reporting, well, both gathering polls and reporting them to have access to that trend that Peter's just gone through with you there. So we, we know what's been happening in these numbers for a, a number of months now. And the hardening no trend has really sort of happened over the last three months or really the last two in particular. But we did chuck in some questions, didn't we, this time? Uh, they were designed really to get a sense, I think, about whether people were were engaged and talking about the voice or not, uh, whether they might be arguing about the voice or not. Why don't you take uh, the listeners through a couple Mm. of those? So we did ask a couple of questions of people, given that there's this anecdotal feeling coming through that people aren't really registering what this is about at all. One of them was whether people agreed or disagreed with the statement they've had discussions with other people about the referendum. Um, 61% said they've had a discussion. Um, They agreed with that statement, whereas only 37% agreed with the statement they'd had disagreements with other people about the referendum, which says to me that you know, it's a data point to suggest that we are operating in our own little bubbles. So mm-hmm. a lot more people are talking about it than say they're exchanging different views about it. So I think when people are talking about it, it is being a bit self, self-referencing. self mm-hmm. What I did find fascinating was that differential, which is, you know, 35% of people who are talking about it say they're not in disagreement, was much, much stronger about no voters, where it's a 46 differential, which I did a bit of unpacking. And if the average no voter or the archetypical no voter, as we said last time, is your grumpy uncle, (laughs) clearly mansplaining. This is a statistical (laughs) data point of mansplaining in that no voters are talking about it a lot and no one's disagreeing with them. (laughs) I think, though, the youngsters, though, were talking about it a lot and they were reporting higher levels of disagreement. Uh, So that suggests if we've sort of got the grumpy uncle as our prototype no voter, then we've got the uppity kind of adolescent at the Christmas dinner giving grandpa what for about the voice by the sound of things. I thought that was quite a nice image in my head. Yeah, but also think about that because with no, I think that friction... So... Older voters, I think, will tend still to be taking more of their information from traditional media where you get the world. Like, you know, there, there is a different news of the world that a News Limited reader is getting from our lovely Guardian readers, although I know that our, our audience goes looking for friction because they're engaged citizens. But one of the really interesting things I've been seeing is the analysis of the way that the No campaign is using TikTok and really going out to reach younger people 
to create that doubt yeah. with Indigenous voices amplifying doubt and misinformation and, and actually going to where younger people live. So I don't know if you have a discussion with your TikTok. I don't, I've never been on a TikTok, so I've never spoken to a TikTok, but um, I do think that you can see where the no campaign has gone. They've solidified the grumpy uncle and now they're trying to go and engage with the um, <laughs> with the young hipsters. Yeah, now, the, um, the Yes campaign is just trying to build the movement. And I guess that's the other bit we, we haven't spoken about. So it looks bad. It's not a normal election where you've got both sides basically running parallel campaigns with big budgets. I think even the No campaign, we concede, yes, has got more money. They're going to be running more of the traditional paid media. They've also got a lot, lot more volunteers. So I guess the unknown and the risk of looking at this as just another election where these numbers would be sort of saying, oh, it's probably time to start you know, protecting the furniture and mm. pulling back is, A, there's no furniture to protect. So you've got to go at it 100 miles an hour. But also there is a different play that's going to unfold over the next little period. Yeah, and it'll be interesting, I think, because sort of getting back to that anecdotal point that you raised, there's anecdotal feedback that people are disengaged. It'll sort of be interesting to see whether or not that sort of more kind of traditional persuasive messaging via traditional means has the capacity to reach voters who are disengaged or whether those voters continue to hide really from the whole hullabaloo because it's sort of... Certainly, as you say, we're kind of the campaign's about to kick up into a different gear over these closing four weeks. And democracy is a dragnet that, you know, drags us all in. Compulsory voting means that we're all going to have to cast a ballot about this. But whether or not people, the people who have been hanging back on this issue, and we've still got, what's our cohort of persuadables? It's about 29%, isn't it, that are either undecided? Yeah, it's only dropped one in the last fortnight. So there's still people in play. Yeah, like thinking about them specifically, because that's where it's won or lost, obviously, that cohort, whether people will, whether some of those people who have been screening it all out, either because they think, oh my God, they're all shouting again and I just can't stand it, or they're so head down in their life mm. issues at the moment, you know, high mortgage, high borrowing costs, high food costs, all of that, uh, that they just haven't had the bandwidth to consider. I wonder what the sort of democracy dragnet does when it's sort of pushed more forcefully in their direction, whether people sort of think, yeah, okay, I will actually sit down and think about this for 15 minutes and form a view, or whether or not people just get irritated mm. because they're being forced to make a choice about something they feel they don't have the bandwidth to consider. I don't know the answer to the question. I don't know. But I do I do think you're onto something there, Catherine, that, you know, we know that whenever you look back on an election, it becomes really clear after the vote what the voter choice was. And a campaign is really a contest on voter choice. 2019 ended up being an election, do you want to pay higher taxes? We didn't really know that until, it, look, in hindsight, it was really, really clear. 2022 was, have you had enough of Morrison? Let's be honest. Yeah. That was what the voter choice ended up being. Yep. So I think the voter choice is still up for grabs. And in that 30% who are either low information voters that haven't engaged, people that are genuinely confused and want to be reassured, or people that are just being buffeted by so much information that they haven't 
cared. So so what is going to be the entry point? And I think you can see the different sides trying to set up different voter choices. And on one side, it is very much this hope piece now, mm. um, which the ads from Yes very much are, can we be better? Yep. And the other side, I'm not quite sure what its choice is, but it is just... Well, the choice and is... Is that a voter choice, though? Is, is confusion and rage ultimately a voter choice or is it a voter repellent? And if for some reason they don't land it, I think the fact that they haven't had that clear choice, you know, they've offered everything. Dutton has offered to run it all again without the voice bit in the Constitution. Warren Munzine's promised a treaty. You know, Jacinta Price is offering a culture war on colonialism. So there's a lot of sort of offers on the table (laughs) in terms of what the choice is, whereas I think the Yes campaign is getting close to that point. Do you want to walk forward? Do you think we can do better? And if that ends up landing then it's not over. And do you think, though, uh, we'll move to the next bit of the poll in a minute, which is mm. uh, the questions that we asked on the government's industrial relations reform, just reassuring people who have tuned in to uh, get into the IR discussion with a couple of IR veterans <laughs> like Peter and me. Uh, but anyway, put a pit in that just for one second. Uh, just referencing that broader campaign dynamic that we were just talking about a second ago, obviously in a normal campaign, once the choice is crystallising on both sides, then we have rebuttals of both sides. Now, obviously, the no campaign is a rolling rebuttal of the yes campaign, as you say, with a buffet of options, right? But I mean, all of those options end up in a simple choice, no. Is there any universe where the yes campaign would go negative against the no campaign? That's what we would see in an election campaign. I think it was very interesting that Anthony Albanese made a point of saying a couple of mornings ago that I want these two campaigns to be very different. I want the tone of these two campaigns to be very different. We can all see what's happening over in the no camp, but, you know, we need to sort of be the moment, rise above, you know, crusade into glory. Mm. I mean, that weren't his words, but it was kind of that sort of vibe. Is there any universe, do you think, where the yes campaign would go sort of full oppo on the no campaign? Um, Good question. Everything I've seen suggests that it would have the people that you are trying to bring across now going low would not meet your objective, even though you would be totally justified in calling out the racism. But look what happened there. Like, it doesn't take your case further. And the discipline, I think, of some of the yes leaders in the face of the barrage that they've been receiving, sometimes under the guise of sensible debate, but often not, has almost been heroic, the discipline of not taking that bait. I think Albanese going high will mean that whatever the result, he is going to be better positioned walking out of this than Dutton, who has clearly gone low. Um, I don't see a advantage for the proposition nor an advantage for the Prime Minister in running a hard negative against such a horrible negative in a way you've just got to create the alternate vision. Mm. Um, Something going around on TikTok, one of my staff showed me on her phone, was a young guy responding to one of the no campaigns on TikTok who was spewing out the normal stuff, but it was doing it in such a respectful way that it even feels like our social media warriors on the S campaign have got the memo. And it's harder to do social media without getting angry and drawing Mm. conflict. Mm. But 
I don't think it would be effective and I think it would actually create more damage um, than, you know, the upside. Mm. So No, I think you're probably right, but it's just So I'm of, no on that one. Been, that, on that I am no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think it's funny because it's the sort of lack of muscle memory because we don't do referendum campaigns very often. It's sort of like we would just sort of be hitting the normal dynamic of a campaign where there would be mm. both positive and negative intersecting at various points in space. But anyway, it'll certainly be interesting the next few weeks. And obviously, we will keep you in touch with the numbers as they come in. Now, let's do IR, my friend. We had another sort of grumpy response to the government's IR agenda, which was unveiled over the last couple of weeks. Business lobbies that have sort of been pretty friendly towards the Albanese government all of a sudden stamped their little feet and became quite exercised by this package of reforms. So we asked a bunch of questions about the reforms. What do the numbers tell us? Hmm. We were testing two things, attitudes towards the specific reforms, but also responses to what I think's quite a bizarre employer <laughs> campaign that's being run against the laws. And for those of you that have found moments when voice advertising hasn't been in your feeds, there has been a lot of employer ads and they're, they're kind of bizarre. One of the laws is this idea of closing labour hire loopholes, which had the label same job, same pay. It's about stopping companies that restructure to create a shadow workforce that undercuts the enterprise agreement that a, a workforce is on. And the ads were kind of like a guy digging a hole and looking across at his mate who's scrolling his phone. And it was kind of saying, hey, your, your workmates are bludgeoned. They shouldn't be paid as much as you. And they've they've actually evolved over the last couple of weeks to also be people working in agriculture and then a woman in the supermarket freaking out about her um the docket and then the message being, well, if you're going to pay people decently, then it's going to cost you at the supermarket. So we just thought we'd test both of those propositions. So firstly, around whether people do see the cost of living being driven by higher wages. When you give people the choice between is it a case of wage and salary increases for workers driving cost of living or businesses maximising profits for shareholders? It's 49.32 people sort of say that it's the business raising the prices that is the main cost of the higher prices. Um, in terms of the bludgers, it's a little, a good little social experiment akin with that. You know, are you a better driver than most people? Everyone says that, which means that statistically there are no bad drivers in the world. Um, so majority of people actually say if they're given a choice, my colleagues and I work as hard as each other. Although at the other side, 28% believe they work harder than their colleagues and only 6% are self-declared <laughs> bludgers. So I think that's a lovely, <laughs> lovely piece, which brings us to the actual IR piece, which is there are three propositions that Tony Burke has pitched up around the concept of loopholes, making it a crime for an employer to not only underpay their workers, that Labor's calling wage theft. That has the support of 79% of respondents, closing the labour hire loopholes for work to undercut full-time workers, 66% support for that, and ensure that gig economy workers who work through digital platforms have minimal rights and entitlements, 54%. What was particularly interesting in each of those was that it's multi-partisan, like Liberal voters are just as likely as Labor voters within a couple of points to be supporting those. On one level, they're creating new industrial rights, particularly for gig workers and the underpayment, but it's also just this sense of stopping the erosion of some of the protections that had 
had been sort of placed under the Fair Work Act of the Rudd-Gillard years. So we can maybe do a bit more of a potted IR history in a sec. But basically, it says to me that these laws are pretty popular. Mm. They're very low awareness of them at the moment, though. So it's almost like the voice on steroids, you're throwing this at people cold and they're pretty open to it, but now you've got this barrage of um, employer advertising Mm -hmm. coming straight at you. Yes. But, you know, we go a long way back on (laughs) IR, Catherine. So we first started talking to each other when I was a very young press sec for the New South Wales Industrial Relations Minister, the late, great Jeff Shaw, when we were re-regulating the IR laws. And you were a very young reporter on the Fin Review, were you, with the IRB? Yeah, I was. We were both in what was known at the time as the career cul-de-sac, industrial (laughs) relations, where you thought you were going down a road and then you realised that everyone built a house at the end or had to back back up into incoming traffic. You managed to get out. I've sort of been there ever since. So kudos oh, to you. Oh, I built no, the shop no. at the end of the street. I did reverse out, but it took me a while. But anyway, what were you going to say? <laughs> few, few, <laughs> few dings in the Holden on the way, I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah. often IR looks like this sort of one-off fight between workers and employers. And then you just realise it almost becomes a bit of a groundhog day, particularly in the messaging. So, you know, the sweep of IR deregulation, which really started in the 80s, first with the Labor Accord, which deregulated the award system, brought it down to the workplace through collective bargaining. Howard came in and took it down to the individual with the intellectual heft of the HR Nichols, probably Australia's first right-wing think tank, if you you think about it. Um, He overreaches on work choices. Rudd and Gillard come back and try to re-regulate with the Fair Work Act and then a decade of conservative rule sort of unpicked that, made lots of exceptions without actually going the whole IR reform and now we're back with Labor trying to unpick the unpicking, which is really what their proposition of closing the loophole. So it is usually the same um, debate. It's about rights for workers versus employers saying, well, We've got to be able to make money because everyone benefits. And I just think the inflection point maybe and going to the last question we put to people has been that I reckon when we started, the trope that unions had too much power would have been, we weren't polling back then, but would have had majority support. Today, um, as a duality, power in the workplace is tilted too much in favour of employers, 42% agree, the balance is about right, 46, only 12% think power is tilted too much in favour of workers, which is almost, I think, I'd have to check, is almost like the density of unionism yeah. now. I think yeah. it's down around um, yes. the, the mm. mid-teens. Yeah. Like maybe there's a trivial pursuit question. If anyone can tell us the unionisation. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. The current one. Even bigger geeks than we it's are. Slow. But anyway, it's yeah. been a journey. And I, I, I do think what's interesting is that if we think about what the end of the year looks like and the voice referendum is over and there will be a reckoning one way or the other, um, hopefully a very positive moment for the nation, Labor has been given now the challenge of talking about workplace reform and workplace laws for the summer. And i don't necessarily think that's a bad place for them to be. It's almost like they'll get past this and be compelled because of the call by the crossbenchers to have this inquiry back to core business. Yeah, it's an interesting thought, actually, that it sort of uh, it tips the debate over the summer and puts the government back into a sort of materialist 
plane after the sort of aspiration of the voice. That is quite interesting. But as you say, it's sort of, it's not an open channel, is it? It's kind of like the the business community are already occupying the no position in advance. And obviously a more drawn out process allows more lobbying of the crossbench. But anyway, Mm. it is a really interesting thought and a good one to leave uh, with the listeners, I reckon. Peter, thank you so much for your time. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.